I'm going to ask you to please stand for the reading of the word of the Lord this morning. This morning we're completing a series of messages entitled Kingdom Shift, Restoring Right Priorities. For the last couple of months we've looked at Mark chapter 11 through Mark chapter 13. And this morning we are going to be looking at and closing out this study with Mark 13. So if you have a Bible, please pull it out, would you? I'm going to be reading from the New International Version, which is the same version that's in the Pew Bible located in your seat in front of you. Or if you have your own Bible, please turn there with me as well. The title of the message this morning is Keep Your Eyes on the Kingdom. And Mark 13 is one of the most complex passages in the entire Gospel of Mark. This morning I will not be able to do justice to it in the brief amount of time that we have in the sense that I will not be able to go into uh, great detail and in-depth around all that is embedded within this Scripture. I would encourage you strongly to take this word home with you and read it and reflect on it. And if you have a study Bible, study it out. There's like innumerable Old Testament references throughout this particular Scripture. It's, it's meaty. It's weighty. And um, so this morning, you know, we're going to try to unpack and digest what we can from this Word today because I believe that God has a Word for Bethel Christian Fellowship today, now, here. Mark 13, as he was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. 
When you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter, because those days will be of distress unequal from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. And all that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and miracles to deceive the elect, if that were possible. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. But in those days... Following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. And at that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And He will send His angels and gather His elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happen, Happening, you know that is near, right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all the things, these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. No one knows about that day or hour, nor not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. You do not know... When that time will come, it's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with his assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Lord Jesus, again, we welcome your word and the weight of your word to rest upon our soul today. Lord, you tell us to gaze intently at your word and in so doing, Lord, be transformed. So God, we gaze upon your word today. We gaze into the very face of Christ and ask, to be transformed. In the name of the Lord, amen. Amen. You may be seated. As you will remember, if you've been walking with us, beginning in Mark chapter 11, Jesus came into Jerusalem for the Passover feast, met with wildly cheering crowds who were excited that the Messiah had come, not really understanding fully the dimensions of what that meant. Upon arriving in Jerusalem, Jesus went into the temple, looked around, then withdrew. Then the next day came in and cleaned out and cleansed the temple. The money changers who were there, those who were selling, those who were providing um, goods and services, but in fact were fleecing the people who were coming to worship at the temple, which brought crisis about with the religious authorities who came to Jesus and asked him, by what authority do you do these things? And Jesus answered them, 
quite plainly by the authority of the Father. And then they began to question him, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the various members of the leading rulers, trying to trip him up on political and theological and religious and moral questions. But the end of the story, as it unfolds in Mark 11 and 12, ends with a widow woman at the temple treasury putting in her two mites. And as we looked at last week and asked the question, what is it that pleases the king? That little unknown, unheralded widow spoke to all of our hearts about the true things that please the King. Total surrender. Radical trust. Sacrificial commitment. And immediately following that event, it tells us here in Mark 13 now that Jesus leaves the temple area. (coughs) And as He is leaving the temple... One of the disciples, unnamed, we don't know which one it was, says to Jesus, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. And truly, this disciple was speaking true. Because the temple was amazingly magnificent. The ancient historian Josephus writes about the temple. He says, The exterior of the building wanted nothing that could astound either mind or eye being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold. The sun was no sooner up than it radiated so fiery a flash that persons straining to look at it were compelled to avert their eyes as from the solar rays. To approaching strangers it appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain, for all that was not overlaid with gold was a purest white. From its summit protruded sharp golden spikes to prevent birds from settling upon and polluting the roof. Some of the stones in the building were 45 cubits in length, 5 in height, and 6 in breadth. What does that mean in terms of size? That means some of the stones were the size of boxcars. Railroad boxcars. What magnificent buildings. What massive stones. And Jesus replies, do you see all of these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Now Jesus and His disciples go on up to the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives has significant prophetic um, importance. It's also strategically located just outside of Jerusalem. And from the Mount of Olives, you can look down over the temple. It's about 150 feet higher and provides a panoramic and quite impressive view of the temple. And notice who comes and talks to him. Who comes? Which of the disciples come to Jesus? Peter, James, John, and Andrew, we often find Peter, James, and John together, and here we have Andrew. Interestingly enough, if you go back to the beginning of our story in Mark, you'll find that 
These were the first four disciples that Jesus invited to follow Him. And they ask two questions. When will these things happen and what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? These are two questions that continue to echo down through the ages. We want to know times and signs. Times and signs. When and what will the signs be? When will it happen and how will we know? When will the end come? Now, you have heard me or seen, you know, if you've been around at Bethel for a while, you've seen this particular graphic that I'm going to put up next. I just want you to hear it again now in the context of our passage this morning. The kingdom of God is near. And it's going to come up in just a moment. This present kingdom, we'll start at the bottom of the graph here. This present kingdom, if you look in Ephesians chapter 2, let me just take a moment to read this to give you the context then. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 and 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. This present kingdom was inaugurated and came into the world back in the Garden of Eden with the fall of Adam and Eve and Satan's temptation of them and he becoming the prince of the ruler of the air. This present kingdom is the kingdom of the enemy who was released and had a certain level of authority that was given because of the temptation and the fall of Adam and Eve, sin entering the world, and this present kingdom beginning. Now, when Jesus came to earth the first time, and we began the story in Mark chapter 1, and we know about the birth of Jesus, God sent His Son into the world in the fullness of time, The Father sent the Son into the world, and that was in the first coming of Christ. When Jesus began His ministry, He said, the kingdom of God is now near. The kingdom of God, in fact, is here. Because the King had come, He inaugurated with Him the kingdom to come. Let's look at um, Matthew chapter 12, verse 25 to 28. Matthew 12, 25 to 28. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How can this kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. They were accusing Jesus when he was delivering people from spirits to be of Beelzebub, to be of Satan. He's saying, no, 
I have come. The kingdom of God has now come. A whole new kingdom has been inaugurated in the world. Now, the church of Jesus Christ lives presently in between these two kingdoms. Matthew 11, verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. Matthew 16, verse 18. I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you, we're going to go on to 19, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. We currently live in the tension between this present kingdom and the kingdom to come. And as it said in Matthew chapter 11, the kingdom of God continues in the midst of this to forcefully advance. So the kingdom of God is forcefully advancing. And will continue to advance until Jesus' second coming. And when Jesus comes again, the kingdom to come will continue eternally. This present kingdom will come to an end. So, let's answer our question. When will the end come? The answer to our question is this. When Jesus returns in power and glory. When will it end? When He comes! Now that's not simply verbal wordplay, that's reality. That is what you and I need to understand and we need to hang on to and grab hold of today. In Zechariah chapter 14 it says, Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as He fights on a day of battle. And on that day, His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half of the mountain moving south, preparing the way for the King of kings and the Lord of lords who is coming. So I want you to get the prophetic significance. Jesus is here on the Mount of Olives and He is speaking to His disciples about the times and signs And Jesus, standing on the Mount of Olives, says to them very clearly, 
Verse 26, at that time men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and He will send His angels and gather His elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. At that time, we will see the Son of Man in His glory. So that's the first answer to the question that the disciples asked. When will these things happen? When you see me returning in power and glory. The second question that the disciples ask, a question that many of us ask, What are the signs of the end coming? How will we know? What are the, what are the pointers? What are the markers that the end of time, the eschaton, eschaton simply means the end things. Eschatology means the study of the end Things, okay? That's why we call it eschatology. So, how will we know? What are the signs of the eschaton? What are the things? What are the markers? What should we be looking at and looking towards? I'm going to take all of this text, which, again, complex. There's so much here to, to wrestle down, but I'm going to bring it down into three primary signs that we can look for. The first is the sign of cataclysm. There'll be cataclysmic events. And throughout this scripture in Mark 13, Jesus talks about these cataclysmic events and He's drawing on much Old Testament imagery. I'm going to pick out one piece from Isaiah 13, which is a very key prophetic word upon which Jesus is drawing here as He speaks to His disciples. Isaiah the prophet says, Wail! For the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Because of this, all hands will go limp. Every heart will melt with fear. Terror will seize them. Pain and anguish will grip them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at each other, their faces aflame. See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. I will make people scarcer than pure gold, more rare than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will shake from its place at the wrath of the Lord Almighty in the day of His burning anger. We see birth pangs all around us all of the time. There is foreshadowings. That's why the Scripture uses over and over again the birth pangs, the the contractions, the earthquake, the famine, the wars, the rumors of wars. All of these are harbingers of future 
events. Secondly, there is persecutions. Persecution. Jesus talks here about you must be on your guard. Verse 9, you'll be handed over to local councils, flogged in the synagogues. Upon count of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witness to them. Gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, don't worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death. A father, his child, children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. And all men will hate you because of me. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Well, this is all really happy sounding, isn't it? The scripture is consistent in Peter writing to a church in the midst, it's going through intense persecution, writes these words which come down to us today from 1 Peter 4. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed. For the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. The third sign that the end is coming is the sign of desolation. You read about it here and people have been speculating about it for as long as the word has been read. Mark 13:14 when you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one in the roof of his house go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter. Why? Because the rivers will have uh, swelled and it will be difficult to get out of where they are because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom He has chosen, He has shortened them. This is embedded in a prophetic word In the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, the end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end. And desolations have been decreed. And He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, He will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, He will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on Him. Speaking here of the Antichrist, who stands against the purposes of God. Speaking very specifically of the temple sacrifices in Jerusalem being stopped and in their place, 
an, an abomination being put, a sacrilege there. That had happened a couple of times historically already, but apparently did not complete or was not the fullness of what this prophetic word is speaking of. Of course, out of all of this, people have speculated and made all kinds of, and you can go online and you can get every chart and graph you want to get. Because there's a whole lot of people out there who got it all figured out. Okay? They know the seven years and the three and a half, and if you multiply by two and square it to the fourth and divide by the number of years from the Jewish calendar from this day to this, and then we've got the day. Now, there are two ditches that we can fall into. One is escaphobia, which is, I don't want to think about this at all. La, 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 la. Okay? And some of you may be feeling that right now. I don't really want to be thinking. The other is escomania, which is, i got to figure it all out. I need to understand what's going on. I want to... Ah. You know, I'm going to go through and I'm going to figure every... But really, there's a middle ground, there's a place, and in fact, I think there's a specific response that we need to bring today as we look at the Word, because I think, no, I don't really think I am convinced that there was a very specific purpose for Jesus speaking to His disciples here, right before He goes to the Passion. Please notice the significance of the timing of this particular teaching of Jesus. It comes right before the Passion Week, right before He is about to be brought to trial, right before He is about to go to His crucifixion. And we're going to look at the final section of the book of Mark during Lent next year, the season leading up to Easter. We're going to complete our study of the book of Mark, and it's going to be awesome. But right here in this pivotal moment, Jesus speaks these words to them. And I believe that Jesus' purpose is far more significant and important than simply giving lots of interesting things for people to be kind of trying to sort out and figure out. What he's trying to do is speak prophetically, pastorally, the double-edged sword of prophetic and pastorally. He's seeking to speak into their hearts and he's seeking to speak into your and my heart this morning because you and I need to answer the question, how are we to respond? How do we respond? Jesus gives some don'ts and He gives some do's. But we're going to begin with the don'ts. So I want to speak to you prophetically, pastorally from the heart of Jesus to your heart today as you consider the fact and the reality that the end will come when Jesus comes back. 
And you and I, living in the tension between the already and the not yet, the kingdom has come and the kingdom is coming. The kingdom is here and the kingdom is near. So how are you and I to live? Well, the first thing, the first thing that you and I, in terms of our response is, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. There will always be those who will take advantage of the unsettledness to promote their own purposes and agendas. Always has been, always will be. So don't be deceived. Jeremiah, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. The Bible is very clear. There will come a day when people will want to hear only what they want to hear. Really, people don't want to hear answers. They just want to hear echoes. They want to hear echoes of their own thoughts. They don't want to hear truth and true answers. So just tell me what I want to hear. Don't be deceived. Don't be alarmed. Now, think about this. This is the words of Jesus right here. I'm not making these up. Verse 7, when you hear wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. So when we talk about all these cataclysmic events and the persecutions that are to come and the desolation and all of these things, the word of the Lord pastorally, prophetically to your and my heart is, don't be alarmed. Jesus says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Trouble is a part of the reality of living in this world. Take courage. Take heart. For I have overcome the world. So that's our don'ts. Don't be deceived and don't be alarmed. Well, what are our do's? What are we to do? How are we to respond, Pastor? Glad you asked. Jesus answers. The first thing that he says is, be watching. Be alert. All throughout. If if I went through and and I'd encourage you to go back through this passage and just look at all the times Jesus says, be on your guard, be watching, be alert. I mean, over and over and over and over and over again. Be watching. 1 Peter 4, 7. The end of all things is near. Peter, I mean, the disciples lived with the conscious awareness that Christ might return at any time. So be alert and of sober mind so that you can pray. 
Keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Be watching. Stay alert. Don't go to sleep. This passage, Matthew 25, is in the context of the ten virgins and Jesus' parable of the ten virgins waiting for the bridegroom and some went to sleep and some were ready when the bridegroom came. Suddenly, the bridegroom is coming and when the bridegroom comes, he is looking for a bride who is watching and waiting and ready for his return. Be watching! Keep your eyes up on the kingdom. Second, do be witnesses. Be witnesses. Be witnesses. Perhaps the most powerful place that we as kingdom followers, can be witnesses and bring testimony in this world are in those times and moments when the distress around our lives is the strongest. Because when the darkness is deepest, it is then that the light shines brightest. Let me say that again. It is when the darkness is deepest that the light shines brightest. I tell you, whoever publicly acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But whoever disowns me before others will be disowned before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. When you are brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, don't worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. God will give you what to say. Lots of people have tried to figure out what's the blaspheme of the Holy Spirit and they're all worried that they may have done it. As far as my understanding, the blaspheme of the Holy Spirit is when we actively and persistently and consistently resist God's invitation to us for salvation. It's our rebellion against Him. It's not... It's it's our act of saying no to God. If you've sinned in your life, which all of us have, and you come and ask for forgiveness, you will be forgiven. You will be forgiven. Just to be clear on that scripture. But I love what it says there. When you're brought before synagogues, rulers, authorities, don't worry about how you will defend yourself or what you will say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. Finally, the last do and very significant and important do for us is this. Be watching, be waiting, Be witnesses, 
and be unwavering. I think this is really at the core of Jesus' invitation to his disciples. And he's trying, even before he goes to the cross, to prepare them for what's coming. And preparing them for what's going to come, even after his resurrection and after his ascension, and when the church is birthed and it's going on. And if I've learned anything in all of my years of walking with the Lord, in all of my years of ministry, when you have done everything to stand, stand. Stand firm. The most powerful thing that you can present in the face of cataclysm and persecution and desolation and anything and everything else that might come at you in your life is your standing firm in God. Stand firm. When you've done everything to stand, stand. All of you, clothe yourself with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourself therefore under God's mighty hand that He may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will Himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To Him be the power forever and ever. Amen. This is the promise of restoration. This year of restoration. Here is the promise that we can stand in. You're suffering right now after you have suffered for a little while. Christ Himself will restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. So, how are we to respond? Very simply, keep your eyes on the King. Keep your eyes on the King. Keep your eyes on the King. Look up. When you're in the middle of whatever it is you're in the middle of, when we're in the middle of whatever we're in the middle of, when all of these things are happening around us, look up! Keep your eyes on the King. Worship team, come on up, please. In the end of the book, Revelation chapter 11, it tells us this. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Messiah, and He shall reign Forever and ever. Ha <laughs> ha.
You want to know how the story ends? There it is. How does this story finish? How does it all come to a close and a conclusion? What's the purpose? What's the meaning of life? What's all this about? Well, I want you to know that history, history has a trajectory. It has an end point. And that end point is that the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. And He will reign forever and forever and forever and forever and forever. Hallelujah, Jesus! Hallelujah! There is a day, come on, the creation's waiting for. Come on, let's stand to our feet and hold your head up high.